Evening, everyone. And uh, for those of you who have the uh, outline there, you'll see a brief outline of uh, tonight's message taken from John chapter 9. And the entire chapter deals with our Lord and Saviour's healing of the blind beggar. And the consequences involved, thank you, Tony, consequences of that healing from John chapter 9. We'll spend most of our time in that area. Okay, in the Genesis account of creation, in the uh, very first words of scripture, we see these words written. In the beginning, God made heaven and earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God saw the light and that it was good. The light that is mentioned here is the light of a divine and holy and righteous God. It was not light as we know it. Sunlight and the light from the sun, moon and stars was not created until the fourth day of creation. So we see and we can understand readily that this was a different kind of light. It was holy it was divine. It was a kind of light that searches the soul and reaches into the uttermost parts of the soul of man. It was a light of truth, light of conviction. And it revealed the truth and the intents of every heart. In the beginning there, God was just in the very early stages of that wonderful work of salvation, creating a world, the only planet in the cosmos that has air to breathe and water to drink, and it was being prepared for people like you and I to observe the wonderful creation and to have the opportunity to give God the glory for what he'd accomplished. God was seeking our fellowship and toward the end of that creation period, those six days of creation, mankind was created to fellowship with a holy and a righteous God. Day four gave us the sunlight to sustain life here on this planet and it's the only one that we know of that has a sustainable atmosphere, a place where we can live and grow. Without that sunlight that was created on day four, we would all perish and perish pretty quickly. In John's Gospel in the first nine verses, we see a similar pattern here about divine light. And uh, that's basically our reading for tonight. If you've turned there, John's Gospel in the first nine verses. You notice here it begins again, again with those three words, in the beginning. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The same light, that divine light, that searches the heart of each and every one of us and reveals to us the wonderful truths, the wonderful spiritual truths that God would have us to know. It was the same light in Acts chapter 9 that blinded Saul on the road to Damascus, changed his life and changed the lives of so many people around the world. When Paul reached out to the world with his missionary journeys and then put pen to paper, writing letters to those churches that he evangelised. And uh, that light is still changing lives today. That light that blinded Saul on the road to Damascus brought Paul to the point where he wrote as many passages of scripture that talk about light both in Old and New Testament. If you pick up a concordance, there's a long list of mention of the, of the light. The Apostle Paul begins in Romans, perhaps, and we've got a bit of time to turn to some of these, in Romans and uh, chapter 13 and verse 12, the Apostle talks about putting on the armour of light. Chapter 12, for the night is far spent, the day is at hand, and let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. That divine light that's been spoken of so often, Paul picks up the same or similar theme in 2 Corinthians uh, and chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. Apostle Paul speaking there about the, the glorious light, the divine light that shines into the hearts of every believer, convicting us of our sinful nature and turning us, hopefully, in the direction of a holy and righteous God to seek forgiveness for our waywardness and our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. Apostle Paul says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And over a little way in the book of Ephesians, a similar theme. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. Paul says, But you are sometimes darkness doesn't say we're sometimes in darkness, it says we're sometimes, we were darkness. And if we're honest with ourselves, we were sometimes darkness. But now are ye light in the Lord, and there the exaltation to walk in light. 
God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, from 1 John, from John's epistle, and uh, verse four, right at the very beginning of 1 John, John talks about light as opposed to darkness, walking in the light, and First uh, John, that which was from the beginning, that word again, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that also that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The glorious light of the gospel, the light of our Lord and Saviour, the divine light. No sun, moon and stars at that stage. That didn't appear until um, the day four. It's a different light to the light that the genius of Albert Einstein took to unravel some of the wonderful mysteries of light that came from the sun and the moon and the stars as a wonderful gift of life from a holy and a righteous God. It took the genius of um, Einstein to work out that there were things called photons, tiny particles in the early days that was believed that rays, long beams of light shone from their source, whether it be the sun or the moon and the stars, like a railway line that you could travel along, but it's not like that. Photons that Albert Einstein uncovered, travelling at that mind-boggling speed, the wonders of creation. In John and chapter 9, in our passage, we begin there with the story of the blind man healed. If we just backtrack a little bit as we look at the narrative, we can see in the end of chapter 8 that our Lord was on the run, basically. The Jews had taken up their stones in their hands, ready to stone him at the end of uh, chapter 8. A little passage there from verse 54, perhaps... Back to verse 53. The scribes and the Pharisees asked him the question, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honour myself, my honour is nothing. It is my father that honoureth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him, and if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you, but I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them, and so passed by. 
And then taking up the, uh, the narrative again in chapter 9, as Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man, which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples saw the man's blindness as a theological issue. And you can understand that. There had been a link established between sin and sickness, well established in the pages of the Gospel. So the, gospel, the disciples were probably starting to make that connection between sin and sickness. And so they asked the Lord that question. It was an either-or question. It had to be either the, um, the blind beggar or his parents that had committed the sin. Jesus answered that this specific sin had nothing to do, or this particular blindness, this particular problem that the man had, had nothing to do with specific sin. He was a sinner like everyone else, and so too were his parents. But his blindness could not be attributed to any particular sin. He probably had a bit of an advantage over us in that the eye gate with which we take in a lot of sin hadn't worked since he was born. He could hardly commit any sins in the womb, so he was not actually born with a pre... He didn't have a, a list of sins before he was born. He still had the opportunity, he was still a sinner though. Probably the first time that his parents leading him around made him stumble or perhaps he didn't like the food that they gave him. He had plenty of opportunity to be a sinner. And like his parents, he was a sinner. But his blindness was not particularly attributed to his sin. Jesus' meeting with this blind beggar was not accidental. Nothing is accidental in the Lord's ministry. Nothing happened. Jesus knew perfectly well that somewhere in the crowd there was a blind beggar in need of, in need of help. It was not an accidental meeting. And so Jesus answered that question that the uh, disciples asked by saying, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. And here Jesus was making reference to the fact that he would not be around all that much longer with his earthly ministry. There was an urgency involved here. There was a need and Jesus was going to fulfil that need. And uh, Jesus said, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and made and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Doing God's work during the earthly ministry was the compelling reason that Jesus engaged in the miraculous healing. And we see in verse 6 where when he had thus spoken, he made that clay and anointed the eyes of the blind man and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. 
He went his way therefore and washed and came seeing. It's only a fairly short walk from the uh, temple to the Pool of Siloam. If you see a reconstruction of the uh, city of Jerusalem as it was in Christ's ministry, it's a very compact place built inside the fortified walls and the buildings are very, very close together. It makes inner Sydney look like open space. The buildings are very, very close together. And here was our Lord on the Sabbath day with crowds of people in the streets and our blind man was led down to the pool of Siloam to wash. And at the end of that verse, he came seeing. What a wonderful transition that would have been for somebody who was born blind. For the first time... He saw those photons that, uh, that Einstein discovered. The light flooded into his eyes and through his retinas and reached the brain. What a, you can hardly imagine just exactly how he would have felt. An adult male seeing for the first time, seeing the sky and the trees and this crowd that gathered around seeing his parents' faces for the first time. What a wonderful transition had taken place in his life. The miraculous healing. And then we start to see the, the controversy that was involved in the healing of the blind beggar. Continuing with the narrative in verse 8, where it says, The neighbours, therefore... And they which were before him, they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Question mark after that verse. Obviously there was some doubt in some people's minds as to whether or not this was the same man. And there was probably some doubt as to whether he looked the same. The man now had clear eyes and a clear eyesight. He was able to see for the first time in his life and I'd suggest that he didn't quite look the same either. And then others said in verse 9, This is he. He is like him. And then he answered and settled the issue for them and he said, I am he. I am he. He settled the identity crisis with, that the neighbours had presented to him. Then in verse 10 he says, Therefore they say unto him, How were the, th thine eyes opened? He answered in verse 11 and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. Then in verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees. And the Inquisition really started in verses 13 and 14 through to verse 16. They brought him to the Pharisees that were aforetime. He that were aforetime, rather, that was blind. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. 
Then again the Pharisees also asked him how that he'd received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed, and do see. Pretty simple, pretty simple process. Somebody led him down to the pool of Siloam and probably helped him climb in. The pool of Siloam was not just a pool of water on the ground, it was a proper pool with, with stone sides, rectangular in shape, and probably held maybe a metre of water, something like that. It was a properly constructed pool and someone had sent him down, helped him to go down there, he washed and received his sight. Pretty simple process. Therefore, says some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. Do you think the man cared much that it was the Sabbath day? I don't think so. He'd received his sight. He probably couldn't care less what day it was. He was once blind and now he could see. The man named Jesus had given him sight. The marvellous healing. Doing God's work doing God, and during the earthly ministry was right on the top of our Lord and Saviour's agenda. And, but the Inquisition continued in verse 17 where we say, They say unto the blind man again, for the second time, what sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? And he answered and said, He is a prophet. And you can just imagine how well that went down. He is a prophet. The scribes and the Pharisees knew perfectly well that prophets were capable of miracles. They knew about the, the miracles that Moses and Elijah had been able to do. And now this beggar who was a nobody in their eyes had said, well, he's a prophet. He must be a prophet. He gave me sight. And it didn't go down very well. And then they asked the parents. They weren't satisfied with that, so they dragged the parents in who were nearby, obviously. They didn't believe concerning him that he had been blind in verse 18 and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them, answered them and said, we know, not that this is our, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Not really the answer that they wanted. They wanted him, them to say, well, maybe that he was somebody else, a mistaken identity. The parents made it plain that, that, they, that the blind man was indeed their son and that he was born blind. And in verse 21, but by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. And we see there in verse 22 that these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews that agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue, thrown out if anyone was to confess that Jesus was the Christ. 
and we see his parents. They ducked the issue. They weren't prepared to be thrown out of the temple. So they put it back onto, the, onto their son. And therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Again, these guys just didn't give up very easily. Verse 24, again, called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. Give God the praise, as apart from this man, because he's a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. I was blind, now I see. Then said they unto him again, What did he do to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And he was getting a little bit impatient by this time. He was starting to get a little bit sick of the Inquisition. He answered them and said, I've told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear if I told you again? Will you also be his disciples? And that probably hurt. That was not the answer that they wanted. And here was a blind beggar starting to uh, take them down, as it were, and they weren't very happy. They reviled him as a consequence and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. Here we go again, hiding behind. Firstly, Abraham there in chapter, chapter 8, and now Moses in chapter 9, playing the game of religion and hiding behind, of all people, Moses, the most humble, probably, individual that ever walked the earth. Moses. What a contrast. Here were these guys with all their pride, the religious elite with all their pride trying to hide behind Moses, the most humble of people who ever walked the earth. It wasn't going to work very well to try to hide behind either Abraham or Moses playing the game of religion and what a game they played. And as we move on in the... Um, in the passage here from verse, right, verses 30 and right through to verse 33, we see here the man answered and said unto them, Why herein is a marvellous thing that ye know not from whence it is. A marvellous thing. The blackness that had once covered his eyes for his entire life was now gone. He could see. All of the things that he'd missed out on for the first years of his life, probably the, he was now an adult. He had to depend upon the other four senses, his, his taste and his touch, his ability to smell. And the other senses that he had, he had to depend upon those four senses for everything that he, he, he was able to absorb in his life. Had to depend on those four senses. Now he could see for the first time. Is it any wonder that he started to get a little bit annoyed with the Inquisition that they were putting him under? Here it is a marvellous thing that ye know not of. 
You know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened my eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshipper of God, and doeth his will, him he heareth. They didn't want to hear that either. In verse 32, since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? Just not possible since the beginning of the world to open the eyes of one that was born blind. God and God only could do that sort of a miracle. They didn't like hearing that either. They answered in verse 34 and said, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. They'd had enough. They got rid of him. Playing the game of religion now wasn't working all that well for them. They cast him out. He'd been blindsided by, or they'd been blindsided by a beggar who was a nobody compared to them. They had status. They had the law to defend. And they'd been blindsided by, by a beggar. A few of you here, I think, follow the AFL. I won't ask you what team you follow. But being blindsided is a, an expression that they use in team games. Just when you set up your defence, you set up a big zone defence, you've got all your defenders in their right places. You set up all this defence, just as these guys did with the defence trying to hide behind Moses, but they've been blindsided by this guy. He was, those of you who follow the AFL, you probably say this guy was the Eddie Betts of the beggars. He blindsided them. They were playing, trying to play the trump card by, by invoking the name of Moses. But that didn't work. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which might not, uh, they which, might, which see not, rather, might see, and they which see might be made blind. And in verse 40, some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, As we, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, he should have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remaineth. In that verse, Jesus is saying, well, you, you would have been better off to be blind and spiritually have the spiritual light shine in your eyes rather than be what you are. You've missed out on the light divine. You've missed out on seeing. You've missed out on saving and keeping. And that is what that divine light does. In verses 40 and 41, we can see there the problem that they had. Blind man's bluff and playing with religion. 
playing the religious snakes and ladders game. They thought that they were at the top of the board. We probably all played snakes and ladders. You roll the dice and up the board you go. They'd played the religious game and they'd gone to the top of the ladder. They'd said the right words and they knew the right people and they'd elevated themselves to the top level. Up the ladder they went. Still happening today, isn't it? Up the ladder you go, up the ecclesiastical ladder if you say the right words and know the right people. And you get a fancy title to go with it. You can be, I made a little list here, you can be a prelate. Okay, you can be an archbishop, you can be an archdeacon, you can be a moderator, you can be a priest, you can be a monsignor. And so the, the list goes on. You can be a pontiff even, you can be a father, a brother, a mother. But be careful going up the ecclesiastical ladder. You can wear the robe. You can carry a staff and pretend that you're the shepherd of the sheep. You can swing the censer full of incense. You can do all those things and have all those trappings. And we saw a bit of television footage in recent times of someone swinging the censer and carrying the staff, pretending to be the good shepherd of the sheep. He's in jail now and probably stay there for quite a while. Ecclesiastical nonsense, the nonsense of religion. It's all about them. It's not, a, not about the flock, not about the lost sheep. It's all about them. And they've got a message that says, don't worry too much about the Bible. We'll take care of it all. After all, we don't want to upset anybody. We don't want to upset the apple cart. We don't want to talk too much about sin. The divine light of truth and grace still shines. The light that John talked about here, talked about in Genesis 1, talked about here in John chapter, chapter 10, talked about by the Apostle Paul in the epistles, talked about by John in Revelation, End of Revelation in um, chapter 22, I think, of Revelation talked about that light where we don't need a sun anymore. We know that men prefer darkness rather than light, but that divine light still shines. In this world, Satan has convinced the people on that ecclesiastical ladder that there was no, and a lot of other people as well, that there's no God. And evolution is the proof of it, that God's word is a fairy tale. The new religion has got many players, many of them that say there is no God, no accountability as a consequence. And there's all sorts of evidence out there. One of the major pieces of evidence is the, the religion of evolution it's out there everywhere, taught in our schools and it's taught in our universities. No one, it seems, has the courage to come out and talk about the wonderful creation of a holy and a righteous God when the light shined upon the earth, when it had no form and void 
And later on, the light, the glorious light of the gospel was shining for each and every believer. And our Lord and Saviour, whom John the Baptist talked about, is the light that was coming. Nobody, it seems, is taking all that very seriously in this day and age. And the evolutionists, how much damage have they done? And I was reading recently some of the work by... Um, Dr. Ralph Matthews, who will be familiar there to Graham and uh, Margaret from Condal Park. In one of his articles, he wrote these words, and we'll do it a, a phrase at a time and give us time to think about it. Evolution has destroyed the souls of millions and will continue to do so whenever it is promoted unanswered. It replaces hope with despair, truth with error, light with darkness, which is close to our theme, life with death. It destroys the image of God in man from the book of Genesis where God said, let us make man in our image. It destroys the image of God in man and degrades man to the same level as animals. It justifies all human conduct in terms of the law of the jungle and survival of the fittest. It seeks to expunge all laws based on God's laws. We can relate to that. We can relate probably to all of this if we're aware of what's going on in our society today. It seeks to expunge all laws based on God's laws and replace them with something else. And to proliferate, and prolifer, prolif, proliferate rather, man-centred legal opinions. It has been used to justify the murder of millions in terms of racial cleansing and acceleration, accelerating rather, the evolution of man, being used to justify the murder of millions in terms of racial cleansing and accelerating the evolution of man. Racial cleansing has been around for a long time. Way back in the book of Daniel, remember the Chaldeans trying to do a bit of racial cleansing, capturing the, the most brilliant and the most promising of the young Jewish men and putting them into uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, castle to become Chaldeans, to cleanse them up, to get rid of their Jewish um, heritage and to replace it with something else. A bit of racial cleansing still going on today. Nothing affects, and Dr Matthews finishes with these words, nothing affects the life we live more than what we believe. If we allow the glorious light of the gospel to shine, what a wonderful blessing that will be. We will see clearly the wonderful love that God has for us the glorious inheritance that is waiting for all of those who remain faithful to the end. 
God has revealed himself so clearly in the pages of his word and through our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. We know that men preferred darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The new religion lets refute it wherever, whenever we have the opportunity. If it remains unanswered, it will proliferate and continue to, uh, well, t to destroy the souls of millions, as Dr Matthews says. It will continue to do that. And we need to be ever on guard and ever ready to be a f an effective witness and testimony for the truth, to be bearers of that light that John the Baptist talked about, the light that was coming into the world, that we have the opportunity to, be, to reflect that light in our lives. We pray that we'll ever be ready to, um, not only to, to be in defence of the gospel, but to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves in our witness and our testimony to endeavour to make a difference in a world that is going into destruction. Pastor Jekyll quite often refers to the lost and dying world. And we see it today, don't we? Where people are so hostile to the truth and blinded. Praise God that there is forgiveness. We worship a God who forgives sin. The people who crucified our Lord and Saviour at, uh, at Calvary, our Lord and Saviour, said these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The people in John's Gospel, chapter 10, the contentious scribes and Pharisees, here, in chapter 9, rather, the contentious scribes and Pharisees, they didn't really know what they were doing. They were blinded by their own status by their own self-importance and their own self-indulgence had made them blind and what a dangerous trap that is when we do not see ourselves as God sees us what a trap we can fall into but praise God there is forgiveness from a holy and a righteous God who revealed himself to us so clearly as a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of grace but a God of light as well that searches the soul and the heart so accordingly we need to consider our relationship with that holy and a righteous God our personal relationship with Jesus Christ to consider that and to, to spend time in God's word and time in prayer so that we can determine what God's will is for our life what a wonderful privilege we have in being called God's people and having the task of spreading the good news of the gospel. And I pray that in the week, in the week to come that we might be about God's business and that uh, accordingly, as God has promised, there is a reward for faithfulness that will be given to each and every one of each and every faithful follower of our Lord and Saviour in his time 
And what a wonderful thing that is to look forward to. The day of God's kingdom is coming and probably coming pretty soon. And uh, so accordingly it is urgent that we be about God's business each and every day. Take every opportunity to spread the good news of the gospel. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are the God of all light, the light that searches the heart and the soul. We pray, Lord, that uh, our response might be that we put our faith and trust entirely in our Lord and Saviour, looking to him who is the author and finisher of our faith, looking to the day when all things are fulfilled and that your kingdom will be established and that, Lord, that we will be joint heirs with Christ for all of eternity. We give you thanks and praise for the wonderful promises that are contained in your word. And we thank you in our Saviour's precious and holy name. Amen.